today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. How many of us, really and truly from the very depth and the core of our lives, would be willing to say, I wish that I were accursed for Christ in order that so-and-so might be saved? Now, as parents, we might say that for our children. As, as spouses, we might say that for a non-believing spouse. Maybe if we have a really good friend, but Paul is talking about the nation of Israel. He says, man, these people that don't know you, I wish that I were accursed in order that they might come to know you. Whether we have children of our own or simply know others who do, we'd probably all agree that the love of a parent is a force to be reckoned with. As a matter of fact, many would go so far as to sacrifice themselves for the well-being of their children. But what about when it comes to salvation? In today's message, Pastor David reflects on the heart of Paul, who stated he would forsake his own salvation for others. In today's message, you'll gain a better understanding of the sacrificial love that God has for humanity. Now here's Pastor David in the book of Romans chapter 9, as he begins his message, Having the Last Word. As we begin the study tonight, uh, I want you to take your Bibles and uh, turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. You're in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. And everybody's going, Romans? I thought we were like still like through the Bible kind of a thing. Yeah. Hang in there. It ain't over yet. Okay. <laughs> Romans chapter 9. It's in chapter 9 that uh, Paul mentions, uh, makes known, or, or declares some really, really powerful things about the Jewish people, the people of ancient Israel that speaks about their, their spiritual heritage. Now, some of you that are in here this evening, some of you that might even be listening on radio, you might have a very strong spiritual heritage. We heard the testimony of one of the brothers in our fellowship whose grandfather was a pastor, his father was a pastor, and one of his sons is a pastor. And so a great spiritual heritage. Some of you, maybe your parents or your, your fathers or your mothers, whatever, were not pastors or ministers of any sort, but they were strong in the Lord. They, they, they had a, a powerful walk in the Lord. And you've got a great spiritual heritage behind you. Some of the rest of you may not have that. You may be the, the, the first believer in a, in a long line of generations. We, we, we have that kind of a mixture here tonight. But when you have a spiritual heritage, guess what? That does not guarantee anything. Anything. Because if you don't grab hold of that spiritual heritage and allow the Lord to work through that, then suddenly all those things that were laid before you end up amounting to nothing for you, yourself. 
Romans chapter 9, Paul writing here in verse 1, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, and I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, guys, that's a powerful declaration. I mean, really and truly, in in your heart and in your life, I just want to let you know we're not going to get finished tonight. This is going to be part one of the message, okay? I already know that from the beginning, and so I'm not going to worry about it. So to have that kind of an understanding that Paul just declared there, It's absolutely amazing. How many of us, really and truly from the very depth and the core of our lives, would be willing to say, I wish that I were accursed for Christ in order that so-and-so might be saved? Now, as parents, we might say that for our children. As as spouses, we might say that for a non-believing spouse. Maybe if we have a really good friend. But Paul is talking about the nation of Israel. He says, man, these people that don't know you, I wish that I were cursed in order that they might come to know you. And listen what he says to them. My countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, the fathers of the faith, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. In this really short passage, Paul here lists no less than eight powerful points of legacy or spiritual heritage, uh, birthrights that the Jewish people had. Beginning in verse 4, he declares that as Israelites, their position brings with it those blessings pertaining to, number one, the adoption. The reality of understanding when we read the Old Testament, God told Israel, I've called you to myself, not because you're anything. As a matter of fact, you're you're pretty insignificant. But I'm going to show my glory through you. Paul says, man, it, it, it was Israel that God did that. The glory. Man, how many, how many nations, how many people could say, man, it was the very glory and the presence of God that led us that went before us, that covered us, that we could see, that we could experience on a regular basis as we went through that wilderness time as, again, the, the, the cloud by day and the fire by night, the very glory of God. When, again, the, the, the blessing of Solomon upon the temple as the temple was being dedicated, and it said the, the Shekinah glory of God came down so powerful, it literally drove the priests out because of that. that Israel had that. No other nation had that. Israel had that. The covenants. Gosh, and we could go through and we could list the covenants that God gave, the promises that God gave to all of the forefathers, to the nation itself, and to the the forefathers again, that, that God says, I promise you, I will make of you a great nation. I will go before you in all of your battles. I'll fight the enemy for you. All of these promises that God gave and the covenant relation that God gave through Abraham and even through Isaac, the giving of the law 
where God literally poured out in the giving of the law more the understanding of who he is than anything else. I think when we look at the law, we can look and say, man, that's a, that's a pretty good you know, outline of the holiness and the righteousness of God. We can't keep those. We're, we're, we're broken. We'd, we'd fail in that on a continual basis. But the law sets up that standard of the greatness and the holiness of God, the service of God, the promises, the fathers. And then that last one, and Christ in the flesh. That Christ came in the flesh, not through the Moabites, not through the Philistines, not through any other nation. No, he came through the Israelites, through the Jews, through the nation of Israel. God had shown himself so faithful to these people over and over through the ages, more so than any other nation or any other people. He had placed his hand of covenant, his his hand of grace upon them as a nation. They had been the ones from the birth line of Abraham. And Abraham, you had Abraham who had a son, Ishmael. And then he had a son, Isaac. The blessings, though God did bless Ishmael in a different way. The more powerful blessing, the complete blessing went through Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And through the bloodline of Jacob came these blessings. And on and on it went through the 12 sons of Jacob that these blessings went for the nation. God working and moving through that. He preserved, he redeemed them out of the bondage of Egyptian slavery. He protected them. He directed them through that wilderness experience. He directed them and defended them as they began to take possession of that promised land, fighting the enemies before them when they were obedient. Okay, we've looked at this and we saw that there was a lot of battles. Let's just face it, they got their tail kicked because they were not obedient because they didn't trust God, they didn't follow God, they tried to go out in their own strength. And I would say that probably that's a pretty good lesson for every one of us. And some of us have already learned that lesson over and over again, that when we go out in our own strength, we usually get our tail kicked, okay? Over and over again, we see this through the history of these people, of how God, God is a God of never-ending covenantal promises, He makes that promise. He's made that promise to Israel. And even though through the years, we've seen that he's had to bring them again behind the shed a couple of times. He's had to give that that, that stern rod of instruction or discipline to them. Yet his promise continually goes back to them. And again, even... the, the word that Paul gave to Timothy, again, that if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He had made that promise. And although God has had to bring correction and discipline upon them through the centuries, and now even through the millennia, we continue to see God's hand of blessing and preservation upon them. It blows me away when you pause and think that all that God has done for that little bitty uh, nation of uh, stiff-necked and disobedient people that have proven themselves all through the millennia, that again, they're, man, they're, they're, they, they can get into the flesh as quick as anybody. And yet they've had all this that's gone before them. Half a millennia before the birth of Christ, about 500 years, 
Israel was brought to a point of severe disciplining. So severe, one would have thought that the nation couldn't have recovered. And yet fulfilling his promise through Jeremiah the prophet to restore them after a 70-year exile into the land of Babylon... God then allowed them to return back to the promised land. Not only to return, but to build, to rebuild the temple, to restore the city of Jerusalem, just as Daniel and other prophets had predicted and declared. Now, they had fallen totally by 586, Jerusalem had. But prior to that, even 602, I believe, was one of the first exile. That's where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many of the others, some of the finest, some of the brightest, some of the best of Israel were taken into captivity into Babylon. Well, now we look at about 70 years from that, 535, the first wave of exiles began returning from what is now not the Babylonian Empire, but it's the Persian Empire. They come back to the area of Jerusalem. They began to lay the foundations of the temple. A little less than about 100 years later, now we're getting closer to the birth of Christ, we're at about 445 BC, Nehemiah, who has been serving at the court of Artaxerxes there in Persia, is led by the Lord to ask him if he could go back and again begin repairing the wall around Jerusalem. And so with Artaxerxes' blessings and the financial assistance uh, to begin rebuilding the wall and for their travel and with all the resources that he gave, him, they they went back to the city of Jerusalem and began rebuilding that wall. And with him go actually the third, the final group of exiles leaving that area and coming back to the land of God's inheritance for them. Now, there were a lot of Jews that just stayed in Babylon. They, They just made a life there, and they really were not interested anymore to go back to the promised land. They just stayed in the Babylonian or now the Persian Empire area. They never did return. But with the ones that did come back, Again, God was going to use them. God desired to speak to them. Now, about 20 years before Nehemiah got there to start rebuilding the wall, the temple had already been completed. Ezra speaks about that, how Zerubbabel and the team, again, started building it, and it wasn't near like what it was in Solomon's day. It was much, much smaller, not nearly as elaborate. They just didn't have the resources to build it the way that Solomon did. Throughout the city, homes had been built, and commerce was being restored, so that when Nehemiah got there, there were already tradesmen in place. There were already homes that were in the area. As life began to to take shape within the city, the temple worship, because now the temple was done. The temple worship, once again, became that central focus of the Jewish life. And following the return from exile, the people of Israel never again practiced idol or pagan worship. God got that out of their system, okay? Prior to that, remember, that's one of the reasons why God took them. They began worshiping all these pagan idols, brought all kinds of perversions into the temple, never again did they get back to that? So again, just part of where things were. The worship activity all centered around the temple and the the synagogues that were located around the country by that time. Now, one would have thought that Israel finally got it right. 
They had finally come to the point of, 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 of that spiritual surrender. I had been disciplined very strongly by God. And now God has brought me back to this place of inheritance, this place of blessing. Lord, I've learned my lesson. I'm now fully submitted to you. And Lord, let's just go 100%. Man, I want to go 120% with you. You would have thought that they would have got it all right at that point, that they would be really with true humility. They'd be focusing on the will of God, the plan of God, the law of God. And one would have thought that, but they would have got it completely and absolutely wrong because that's not where they were. They came back in the midst of this physical restoration. There was still this spiritual deadness that was there. It was an emptiness of, of worship. There was an emptiness of the practice of religion. It appeared to be right on the outside. But to quote Jesus, in Jesus' time, it was still there. And Jesus says, you're nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Well, beloved, the vast majority of the nation was that way, even after coming back from exile, even after the rebuilding of the temple and the wall and getting the city back. Oh, they were going through the motions, but there was no real heart, no real passion for the things of God. They were neglecting true devotion. They had a hard and a cold heart. They were void of any kind of passion for God. And literally, they were filled with disobedience within their life. It's that scene that the last book of the Old Testament is written, the book of Malachi, okay? So now you know where I'm going. So now, hang a left, go back to Malachi, okay? The book of Malachi is written actually to draw attention to the people of Israel uh, and, and about their emptiness, about their continual walk of denial of, of, of any wrong. Again, uh, they were just going through the motion. They, they were having their, their meetings. They were doing their rituals. But there was no real connection with God. And that's why the Lord spoke to Malachi to, again, speak to the people. It was written, you need to understand that it was written, Malachi was written about the same time that Nehemiah was still, again, there in Israel trying to bring a, a, a spiritual restoration even as they were uh, there. They had finished up the wall at this point in time, but Nehemiah was still working for a spiritual, a moral restoration of the people. And Malachi points out very clearly the lethargic, this meaningless acts of worship that's going on within the people of Israel. And the, the sinful life choices that these people were making, including the, the choices that their priests were doing. And again, God had disciplined them for their apostasy, for their continued sinfulness. Now they're right back at it again. Oh, we're not doing idol worship. Oh, we're not worshiping the pagan gods. No, the reality is you're not even worshiping the real God. You're just going through for your own pleasure, for your own good. We're looking at a time frame here that Malachi was written about 440 B.C., so about 440 years or so before the birth of Christ. Four short chapters. If you add them all up real quick, you realize it's 55 verses. And nearly each one of them is either speaking about the failure of the people or speaking about God's discipline 
or it's speaking about, but God is, will restore you if you come back to him. Through that, we, we see the phrase, the Lord of hosts, in 24 of these 55 verses. 24, that's 44%. I mean, it's huge. The Lord of hosts. Again, speaking about the, the, the strength, the might of, of God Almighty. Malachi, as he writes here, and as the Spirit of God is giving them these words, he's trying to drive home the, to this stiff-necked, this obstinate people that God is truly, truly sovereign. He's sovereign over all, and he will not accept half-hearted, irreverent, and insignificant worship. Did you catch that? Because of the greatness of who God is, not was back in 440 BC, but of who God is, God will not and he does not accept half-hearted, irreverent, and insignificant worship. If there's one overriding, really clear, sobering direction that Malachi brings here, is is that our God demands, he demands it, that we worship him with a whole heart or he will not receive our worship at all. I don't know about you, but when I was processing all of this uh, as getting ready for this study, I thought, man, that's exactly what he's saying here. Matter of fact, we'll look at it Probably not tonight. Did you move that clock ahead or something? Uh, we'll, we'll see in Malachi. It comes to one point. He says, hey, somebody go lock the doors. Turn out the lights. This is just a waste of time. And beloved, that, the burden on my own heart is if he said that to the people of Israel, worshiping there in the temple, I wonder how often he says that to the churches of today, half-hearted, irrelevant, irreverent, insignificant worship. He says, I'm not going to take a half a heart. It's all or it's nothing at all. It's because he is God and he can command, he can demand those things. Malachi brings the charges to the people in the form of some, you can call them imagined questions. He'll go through here about eight different ones. Says, you say, yada, yada, yada. Or you ask this question. You don't know why. Well, I'm going to give you the answer. Again, it's, a, it's, a, it's that form of, of learning where you, you ask the questions and as you dwell into that question, it brings out just a deeper understanding of the situation. Again, to kind of do away with any kind of false presumptions that the, 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 the listener might have about where their standing is. Let's get into it just, just a little bit this evening. Chapter one of Malachi, verse one, really kind of sets the whole mood for the thing when you look at what he writes. He said, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We don't know a whole lot about Malachi other than that. His, his name means a messenger or my messenger. Some have uh, presupposed or guessed about the fact that maybe Malachi wasn't a real guy, maybe uh, or a real name of someone. This was just the messenger God might have used, an individual, an angel, whatever. I, I don't know why we have to stretch that far. Malachi, I think it's a guy by the name of Malachi that the Lord spoke through.
As our time with you today winds down, we'd like to share where you can listen to today's message again. You'll find this and other teachings from Pastor David and The Open Word at theopenword.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to ensure you never miss an edition of the program. Right now, let's turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick message from the heart. Hello, friend. I'm so glad you joined in today to The Open Word. As you know, this broadcast is meant to share with you the hope, grace, and love that can only be found through Jesus Christ. He's the reason I teach every week at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. I want as many people as possible to know and believe the message of the gospel. If you'd like to know more about what Jesus' life and death means to you, I'd encourage you to call us. We have some great people here who would love to pray with you and answer your questions. Our number is 520-836-9676. Again, that's 520-836-9676. Know that I'm praying for you too, and I value you greatly as a listener and brother or sister in Christ. Thanks, Pastor David. We'd like to invite you to come see us in person as well at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. We have services every Saturday, Sunday, and Wednesday, and you'll be able to find more information at theopenword.com. Just click the church link at the bottom of the page. With that, our time with you has come to an end. Join us next time to continue our journey through the Bible, right here on The Open Word. Make us more.